Imagine a mother whose son was murdered. Imagine her later in court at the sentencing hearing of the man convicted of that murder, as she is speaking to the judge and to the man about to be sentenced. And imagine her telling the man who killed her son that she forgives him, and then asking the judge for leniency in imposing sentence. Difficult to imagine, you may say? Well, imagine no longer, because Lisa Daniels is that woman, a real-life example of what Jesus taught about forgiveness in the Sermon on the Mount. In this episode, she tells her story of healing through forgiveness and of her firsthand experience with a criminal justice system in which the interests and views of victims are often overlooked or given little real consideration, even by those claiming to be seeking a vindictive form of justice on their behalf. Far from being a starry-eyed idealist, Lisa is a clear-eyed realist, as a result of both her own lived experience and from serving until recently as a member of the Illinois Prisoner Review Board, reviewing applications from people in prison seeking relief from very long sentences for very serious crimes. In the latter part of this episode, after sharing her story, Lisa explains the basic principles of restorative justice that came to be at the center of her heart and of her work as executive director of the Darren B. Easterling Center for Restorative Practices, named in the memory of her son. If you are pressed for time, please listen to the short video of highlights on the Justice Voices YouTube channel. After that, you'll probably be back here to listen to all of what Lisa shares about her story and to join with the two of us as we discuss true justice as healing for victims of crime, for offenders, and for their communities. Then, please share Lisa's message with others by posting a link from the Justice Voices website at justicevoices.org or our YouTube channel on your social media and subscribe to this podcast. And if you yourself are a victim of crime, you are invited to share your own story and your views about justice for victims on the Victim Voices Facebook page or on the Victim Voices community page on the new social media platform of IBLE, I-B-B-L-E. Your voice matters too, and sharing it can help heal others. This is Justice Voices, eye-opening stories and commentary about justice, healing, and safer communities. Welcome. I'm David Risley. Our guest today is Lisa Daniels. Lisa, it's good to have you with us. It's good to be here, David. Thank you so much for having me. Lisa, this is a conversation that's been a long time coming. Yes, it has. As we were talking before we started recording, the... First time we met was while I was working in the governor's office, previous administration, yep. 
as the director of public safety policy. Mm-hmm. And you had told me a little bit about your story. And I had asked you to write down your contact information. And you wrote it on a three-by-five card. And I've kept that with me on my desk. That's so funny. For, what, three years? Yeah. Something like that? Something like that, yeah. Three, four years. Well, yeah, it would be. It'd be longer than that. Mm-hmm. So maybe five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Justice Voices didn't exist at that time. Right. But I knew at that time, and I think I told you, you have a story that needs to be told. Yeah. You have a unique perspective. You're the mother of a son who was murdered, mm-hmm. Darren B. Easterling. Mm-hmm. You are now the executive director of the Darren B. Easterling Center for Restorative Practices. I am. We'd like to talk about that. Sure. And back when we met, you had been appointed by, again, the previous governor as a member of the Prisoner Review Board, Illinois Prisoner Review Board. Correct. And in that capacity, you would make be part of a panel or panels mm-hmm. that would make determinations about whether some people who had served very long sentences would be released on what in old Illinois law was parole. Correct. And more recently, and well, in all those cases, people who had filed petitions for clemency from the governor, meaning some form of relief from their sentence. Right. And that gives you a rather unique perspective. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. So we want to hear your perspective, your story, and all these various facets of it. So let's start with talking about Darren Easterling, your son. Okay, let's talk about Darren. Darren is my youngest son, and you mentioned that he was murdered. He was murdered in July of 2012, and I refer to him in present tense always, because I've always believed that despite the fact that he's no longer in his body, I'm still his mother and he's still my son. Him leaving the earth did not sever our relationship. And all of the things that I have done since his passing are a reflection of me parenting my child. He would be 35 today. Today? Well, not today, but at this time. At this time? He, yes, he would be 35. He was 25 years old when he lost his life in an instance of gun violence where I've always maintained that he was both victim and perpetrator. And what that means is simply exactly what it sounds like. He was in the midst of committing a robbery under the guise of a drug deal that went completely wrong for both parties involved. Darren lost his life that day and the young man who was also involved in that incident was convicted of murder. Michael Reed. Michael Reed, yeah. Now he was convicted of murder because they both came Mm -hmm. to the drug deal armed. Mm Mm-hmm ready to use those weapons exactly. if need be. Yes. And so under the law, speaking as a former prosecutor, <laughs> right, right. even though it may have been Darren who attempted to rob him, mm-hmm. it was still 
a a homicide that was committed in the course of a felony offense, mm-hmm. such that he had anticipated this possibility and came ready to do what he did. Exactly. So he had the intent to do it. Exactly. It's just that Darren triggered the yes uh, triggered the trigger. Exactly. So to speak. Exactly. Could have been the other way around. It could have been the other way around. I've said that from day one, and that was a part of my messaging when I gave the sentence impact statement at Michael Reed's sentencing hearing, that it could have been the other way around. And uh, and we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. So tell us about Darren before that day. Who was Darren B. Easterling? Darren was my youngest son. Darren is my youngest son. He's seven years younger than his oldest brother, older brother. And uh, he was, and this is a running joke in in my family. So when, when my oldest son sees this, he won't be offended. Darren was my favorite. And that's, again, it's a running joke between the both of them. And then because the joke went where I would ask something of one of them and they agreed. And it could be simple, something as simple as, would you give me a glass of water? And whoever, you know, if he agreed, whomever it was, whomever I was talking to at the time. And they said, sure, my no problem. And I said, you know, you're my favorite. And then as they grow old, grew older, you know, they got me with... Yeah, really. I know, right? You know, so I can say to... I'm sure he enjoyed being told, you're my favorite. You're my favorite. Yeah. He he was funny. They were both funny. We laughed a lot. We're all funny, actually. We're all pretty funny people. Darren, Kevin, and I. Kevin is my oldest. And uh, he struggled early on in his childhood. And he struggled in lots of areas with his behavior with commitment to following rules. But in spite of all of that, he was such a loving person. He wanted good things for himself and for his family. But from as far back as kindergarten, he struggled in school, again, with behavior, being suspended. I was single at the time, and I didn't know that maybe he might need therapy. I didn't know that he may have had some areas that he needed to work through or talk through. I didn't know. I just knew that as long as I loved him and as long as I disciplined him, then we were all going to be okay. And I'm challenged to say that we're not because we are. But that's another conversation. Now, Kevin grew up in this with the same mother. Mm-hmm. In the same house. Same household. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the trajectory, the path of Kevin's life. Kevin is 42 now and married and in Paris at this moment with his wife because they love to travel. He works in the hospitality industry. He's probably been there about 20 plus years and he took a different turn yeah he took a different again a different trajectory than his brother did same good person they were both very very good people they are very very good people they just made different decisions about how they wanted to live their lives and with seven years separating them in age they actually lived in different environments different school environments maybe even different friends or whatever but exactly kevin with the same mom, mm-hmm. went the direction, I suppose you would say, by some standards, high achiever. Mm. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and law-abiding. Obviously, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Darren took a different path, mm-hmm. trying to find his way. Yeah. And it ended tragically it for did. him. It did. And for you. It did. Now, I think this is an important point because there are moms who have lost, maybe not through death, maybe through death, maybe through other having sons or daughters who have taken a different path. Mm -hmm. And it's common for parents to blame themselves. Yes. And yet here you have two sons with the same mom. Yes. Taking two different paths. Correct. That suggests that it was, since it was the same mom, Mm -hmm. doing the same, making the same effort Mm -hmm. to keep them on the right track, Mm -hmm. that they each chose their own way. They did. For good or for ill. Mm -hmm. And that that's not something that a parent who has experienced this or is experiencing this should take upon themselves wholly. Of course, parents play a part in it. But I think your story illustrates an important point that for a lot of parents, that's not a burden that they should be bearing. They can grieve, but those feelings of guilt. Hmm. We are all children of God, I sometimes think to myself. Mm -hmm. And God's children, God's a perfect parent. And what if his children go astray? So we shouldn't hold ourselves to any higher standard than we would hold God. Absolutely not. I agree with you 100%. I miss Darren every day, but there was never a moment, and I'm emphatic about that, there was never a moment where I took on any level of guilt for the choices that he made that day. I've been forever impacted by the choices that he made that day. But I remember being at a, a what's it's called a call-in event. And it's a, a, a meeting where individuals who are all system impacted are, are brought into this meeting and they're where resources and information is shared. So all of these individuals are currently on what's called mandatory, our, our current parole system, which is currently called mandatory supervised release. And the the violence reduction strategy entity brings these these groups together to, again, to hear from law enforcement, to hear from resources, and to hear from the community. And I got an opportunity to be that community voice to go into those spaces. And this was after Darren was murdered, obviously, and I got an opportunity to talk to these individuals. And usually we're talking about 100 gentlemen, always gentlemen, always gentlemen of color in the room. And to talk about my experience in losing my child to the same experiences that they are having and and to shed some light. And I remember just always speaking very matter-of-factly about what happened to Darren and how it impacted our family. And just sharing with them that this is what it looks like on the other side of the decisions that you make. This is what you leave behind. These are the, the, this is the family. These are the children that you leave behind. And this is what it looks like. It looks like in many cases, it looks like a family member having to step up 
and pick up the pieces that you've left behind because of your decisions. And that could be whether someone loses their life or their freedom. And I remember this one particular meeting, one of the police officers that was in this meeting came over to me and asked me a question and very graciously and, and, and very respectfully asked me, how is it that you come to these meetings and you speak so matter-of-factly about your son and his actions and his life and his death? And I said to him, it was interesting because no one had ever asked me anything like that. And so I had never even thought about it before. And I said, hmm, I respect his decision. That's the thing that keeps me sane. I respect his decision. I don't like it, but I respect his decision to have lived the life that he chose to live. And... Unfortunately, it cost him his life, but it would never cost him my love. That doesn't change. That doesn't change. That's a powerful message. One of the things, when I was a federal prosecutor, mm -hmm. I was in charge of the Project Safe Neighborhoods, mm -hmm. a federal program for reducing gun violence. And back in those days, we were really struggling with what messaging could be sent to potential shooters to keep them from picking up the gun? Mm -hmm. Even if, if you're going to be a drug dealer, don't pick up the gun. Right. Don't come to a drug deal carrying a gun and ready to shoot somebody. Right. Or be shot. Right. Better not to do the drug deal at all, but you get my point. Exactly. Leave the guns out of it, whatever it may be mm -hmm. that you're doing. That was a hard sell. There wasn't, you know, they tried things, you know, the scared straight approach, all sorts of things, um, mandatory minimum penalties mm -hmm. that were very daunting. Right. That would be mandatory extra five years, 10 years or more right. in federal prison mm -hmm. on top of whatever sentence mm -hmm. the person was serving. Mm -hmm. yep. Those things didn't seem to have much impact. Nope. They found in the research there was one thing that really reached people. Unfortunately, after the fact in the research, the people who were the subjects of the research, and that was the impact on their mothers, especially mm -hmm. families, but especially their mothers. Mm -hmm. And it filled them with sorrow and regret. Right. And if that's something that young men and young women, but especially young men, could Think about, what if this does go bad? Right. How will that impact my mom, my family, my wife, my children? Mm -hmm. Darren was a dad. Yes, he was. He was. Two children, a boy and a girl, and they are 15, and my granddaughter will be 14 on the 24th of this month. They are two beautiful, amazing, amazing human, human beings. And one of the things that I used to say when I did those call-in meetings, to your point, was asking these gentlemen, how are you, or not how, but why is it that you are preparing yourselves to have your daughter 
particularly your daughter, because, you know, your daughters are usually soft points for, for men. Why is it that you're living your life in preparation to have your daughter raised by another man? Oh, that probably hit hard. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would always get visible responses. They would flinch? Yeah, flinching and, you know, oh, my goodness, you know, because just the idea of it. This is important because one of the things that I've learned about crime is so much of it is impulsive. Mm-hmm. It's not all thought through mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. advance. Mm-hmm. Nope. No, it's not. And so the ability to anticipate very serious negative consequences before you do something would prevent a lot mm-hmm. of gun violence, other forms of violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet that's just not the thinking of somebody who's in their teens. Oh, my God. In their early 20s. Exactly. No, it's not. In a in a recent hearing, one of my last hearings as a member of the Prisoner Review Board, we read a letter or a letter was read from an individual who's been incarcerated for probably the last 40 years and he was up for parole and in his statement i never forget the final sentence of his statement because i actually wrote it down and he said crime always takes place in the moment always and I just thought that that was so powerful. And it, it lines up perfectly with what you just said, that individuals who are in the midst of crime have not thought about it, have not thought it through, have not taken a step back and looked at the big picture. I said in the in the sentencing hearing, I just I remember saying to the gentleman that I understand that neither you or Darren woke up that morning with this being the intended outcome. You couldn't have you couldn't have thought this through. You couldn't have woke woken awoken that morning and said today's a good day to kill somebody. He didn't wake up and go, yep, today's gonna be the day. It didn't happen. And yet when you pick up the gun, yeah. you're making a decision to be ready. Yes, exactly. For whatever happens, whatever the outcome is. Let's suppose that Darren were sitting here right now. Okay. And it was the day before he was killed. Okay. And somehow you were fearful that that was going to happen. And you were having a talk with him and telling him, Darren, please don't do this to me. Don't do this to your children. Mm -hmm. What would you say? We've had that conversation. Tell us about yeah, those conversations. I, I knew the lifestyle that he was living. I knew the choices that he was making. And it, it was no more than, I need you to make some different decisions. I need you to understand that there is so much that is possible for you. I wish that you could articulate for me why you continue to make the decisions. I even, again, we were, we're all pretty funny people. And I remember always, I just kind of shoot from the hip. And there were, there were conversations where I would say to him, you know, this is the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, tenth time you've been to jail for selling drugs. You're not good at it. I need you to I need you to go in another direction. This is not working for you. This is not a career path. This is for you. not 
this is not the career path for you, son. I need you to do something different. This is not working. And yeah. So that very, very honest conversations. Yeah. Very, very honest conversations that we had. Yeah. How did you find out that Darren had been killed? I got a phone call. It was a Sunday and I got a phone call late that evening, nine-ish, 9 p.m.-ish, from one of his very good friends that called me mom. And he called me and he said, mom, something's happened. I don't know what happened to bro, but I've been trying to call him and he's not answering his phone. And people keep calling, saying something happened over on Illinois Street. And they said that there was a body over there. Ma, I don't know what to do. And I remember not even panicking. I remember having a very, very cool head at that moment. And I said, don't worry about it. I'll call him. I'll call you back or he'll call you back. There was nothing in my spirit that said that there was anything wrong. And that even in itself is another conversation. And so I called him with an assurance that he was going to answer the phone, that maybe something had happened. He was somewhere afraid and he just needed me to to come and get him. He needed his mom. He needed his mother. And I called and he didn't answer. And I still didn't get bothered. I still didn't panic. I called the police department. This happened in Park Forest, Illinois. I called the police department and they said that they didn't know anything about it. They didn't know anything about, you know, anything. He wasn't there because I think when I called, I was calling to see if maybe he had been arrested. And they said, nope, we don't have anyone here by that name. I called a hospital in the area and I was told that he wasn't there. And I remember even asking if he was in the morgue because she checked the morgue and she and she told me, no, he wasn't there. I was married at the time and my husband had been on the phone with another friend of his who worked in law enforcement that told him that there was an incident that had taken place in Park Forest earlier that day. And he asked me if I wanted, if I'd be willing to consider contacting the county morgue. And I said, sure, fine. There was still nothing in me that was alarmed. And I called the county morgue and I asked if he could tell me whether or not my son was there. And he said, it was so interesting because he was so matter of fact. He said, yeah, sure. What's his name? And I told him his name and he said, how old is he? And I told him how old. He's 25. And he said, hold on a moment. And he put me on hold. And when he came back, he said, yeah, he's here. And it was so casual and so matter of fact that in my head, I got ready. I was preparing to say, oh, okay, can I talk to him? because it was so casual and I didn't say that because then I remembered, no, you're talking to the morgue, dear. So you're not going to be talking to him. And so my question then was, can I come see him? And in that moment, I had vision of, you know, law and order going in the morgue and then opening the drawer and seeing his body. And but that isn't how that works either. 
And uh, the gentleman said, we have viewing between, you know, Mondays through Fridays between, you know, 10 and 5 or whatever it was. And I said, oh, okay. And that was that. That's how I found out that my son had been murdered. So they knew at the morgue who he was. Mm-hmm. Of course, no one had contacted you from the police or anything else. Oh, I'm not Lord. sure that they would have known unless Darren had some something on him that would say, in case of emergency, call right. Lisa Daniels. Right, call my mom. That's still a thorn in my side today that I was never contacted by any police. And my understanding is that the procedure would have been because I lived in Chicago and he had identification on him because the newspaper article that ran the next day had my address, identified him and used my address. Because so somebody could have come. So somebody to- could have come to my home. Yeah. And the procedure, my my understanding is that the procedure would have been that Park Forest Police would have contacted Chicago and Chicago would have come to my home. Darren had been dead since two o'clock in the afternoon. And I just found out at nine o'clock that night. But only because and you called on, the county morgue. And only only because I only called the county morgue because his friend called me and said something was wrong. It's hard to imagine what you would have felt if you had read about this in the newspaper the next day yeah. or in some news account. Yeah. Yeah. And that and the potential was was there for that to have happened. Yeah. Well, this is something that illustrates one of the things that I think, speaking as a prosecutor, our criminal justice system is revolves around public safety mm-hmm. and the interests of the public. Mm-hmm. And when somebody has been killed, they're no longer a threat to public safety. It takes a concerted effort in that system mm-hmm. When police are busy writing up reports, they're going through, they're processing the crime scene, they're doing all these things, Mm -hmm. there has to be somebody Mm -hmm. whose job it is Mm -hmm. to think about the victims. Exactly. Well, the victim is dead. No. No. There are always, there's always more than one victim. Yeah. Yeah. That, you, you, you put that very, very well. I had an opportunity to speak to the mayor of Park Forest about that very situation and he he said what you said that there's a lot of activity going on at the time he made no excuses and he was extremely apologetic and whomever's job it was to make that call or to pass on that information drop the ball yeah the the drop the ball and for and I guess not to sound dramatic but in that in that experience, that system failed me, and it failed my son. Well, I have no way of knowing whether there was a system in place back then or not. I would right. hope there is usually, right. but I can tell you this. It's often said, everyone's responsibility is no one's responsibility. Unless there is someone whose job mm-hmm. is not to write up reports or mm-hmm. do something else, mm-hmm. but someone whose job is to look after the interests of the victims whether it be someone who, you know, maybe someone has been shot but not killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are trauma teams, mm-hmm. Michael Tafoya, who mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. was the subject, the guest in a couple of previous episodes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of this podcast, mm-hmm. or of the Justice Voices podcast, being one of them. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't work for the government. Nope. No. And so that's something that when the government is looking after the interests of the people, the people includes the victims as people. Exactly. Exactly. I think that is such a, a such an important point because I've often thought about that. I've had other conversations about that particular day and that experience and how how is it that this team of people are walking around this scene doing what each of them is assigned to do in in this particular experience. And all the while, my son's body is laying on the ground with a sheet over it. I've seen video footage of that. Oh, that had to be hard. And... No one has thought or acted on the thought that this young man laying here has people that love him. At that address. Yeah. At the address on the identification that you pulled out of his pocket. No one thought that he matters enough to someone that they might want to know that he's he's here. That... More than talking about what happened to Darren, who Darren was, the fact that Darren is gone, more than any of those things, the idea that my child laid on the ground from one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon until seven or eight o'clock at night, and nobody that loved him knew that he was there. That breaks my heart. That breaks my heart. That brings tears to my eyes. His it's almost birthday, bringing tears yeah, to my eyes right now. Just, his birthday will come and go the day of the, that marks, you know, the passing of his life will come and go. And I can move through those days with ease. I can find space to celebrate on those days, the holidays come and go, and I focus on what remains. I focus on the joy of his children being here. But to think about my child laying on the ground, lifeless, and I had no idea, and nobody saw enough humanity in him to reach out, make the effort to contact somebody that loved that man, that breaks my heart. It ought to break the heart of anybody who's listening. And I hope there are people listening who have the ability to make sure those things do not happen to the families, to the loved ones of victims of violent crime or even an accident. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and there was another half to this because the shooter the man who shot and killed your son, Mm -hmm. Michael Reed, was arrested. Yes. And he was prosecuted, Mm -hmm. or he was charged with murder. Mm -hmm. He was. And that investigation and case drug out for years. Four years. Four years. That's a long time. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
What was going on in your mind, in your heart, regarding the man who killed your son during that time? What was going on in your life at the time you learned who had done it, mm-hmm. over the time span before he was ultimately, there was a sentencing hearing? Yes, yes. Tell us about that. I learned of who he was. Not long after Darren was murdered. but In fact, I think it was before the funeral, so within the week. And I wrote a Facebook post. I can't tell you why, but my heart immediately went out to him and his mother. And I wrote a Facebook post about it. And I basically said that I've learned of who this gentleman is. And today he's been charged with first-degree murder. And nobody wins. And I would ask all of you that have prayed so fervently for me over the past few days that you now pray for this man and his mother because she lost her son too. And I never deviated from that. And so from that Mindset. Yeah, I never deviated from that mindset from the day that I wrote that post till October 2016 when I sat in the court and gave a victim impact statement at Michael's sentencing hearing. You know, you at one point, I guess it was a couple of years ago, you gave a, a, a talk that WTTW. Uh, a mm-hmm. PBS station mm-hmm. yeah. was part of a series mm-hmm. firsthand. Of, of, of mm-hmm. people speaking about different aspects of crime, firsthand mm-hmm. talks. Mm-hmm. And that's available at interactive.wttw.com, mm-hmm. firsthand slash, and it goes on mm-hmm. and the things. But mm-hmm. in that, you tell a story of you coming to grips with your feelings toward Michael Reed. And that involved some grappling Mm -hmm. with yourself, didn't Mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you you share that with us? Sure, sure. We were at the point where the case was going to go to trial. The four years, it was in discovery. They were just gathering information. And finally, I I heard from the Cook County State, the assistant state's attorney, and she shared with me that we're ready to go to trial. Unfortunately, we're not quite sure as to what this is going to look like, what the outcome is going to be. It's been four years. Witnesses have fallen off. You know, they've forgotten their accounts. They're under no obligation to come forward. And we don't know if this is a winnable case. And the, the, the challenge for me was I understand that I've forgiven him, but that doesn't mean that he should not be accountable for what he did. And I was at a place where I wasn't quite sure what that looked like. Can I interrupt you just I, for a moment? For sure. You say you forgave him. Yeah. What do you mean? I was, I did not blame him for what happened to Darren. I was not, I was not angry. I saw him the same way I saw Darren as somebody who was troubled 
and lost in direction, in the direction that they were going to go in in their life. And I felt like he and his mother deserved as much compassion as I did for the loss that I had. You know, that is the golden rule. Yeah, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah. We say that kind of glibly. Yes, yes. And yet here's an example of where that must have been a challenge for you, Mm -hmm. even though you were successful in having that heart come Mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. What within you caused you to have that heart? I believe the Word of God. I, I just, I believe it. People study it, and they read it, they repeat it. But it is the living word, right? It is the living word of God. It is the way that we are to live our lives. And there are a few passages on forgiveness. The Lord's Prayer is one of them itself. He said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then right after the Lord's Prayer, he explains and says, because if you forgive those who trespass against you, Mm -hmm. your heavenly Father will forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, then you will not be forgiven. Yeah, That's pretty straightforward language. Yeah, pretty cut and dry. And I'm sure people who heard that then, and maybe people who now, they say the Lord's Prayer and Mm -hmm. it comes off their lips, they memorize it and all. Exactly, exactly. But until, I suspect there are plenty of people who are listening right now who are thinking, oh yeah, well, if I were Lisa Daniels, that would be hard. Yeah, and I don't, I've, that's something that I've grappled with over the years, David, because I don't understand what is hard to understand about that, particularly in the church community. I don't understand what you don't understand about the way I chose to live my life, the way I chose to forgive, because it is a choice. We 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 have free will but it just made sense to me it just made sense to me that that young man and his family deserved an opportunity to continue with their lives and to be better than the young man that showed up to meet my son on July 22nd, 2012. He's still alive, and so he should have an opportunity to be a better person. And I have not had any communication with Michael, but I always hope, and I believe that he is making good use of the second chance that he's been given. It'd be interesting to have him as a guest if he were willing, if we could make contact yeah. and if he were yeah. willing to do it. Yes. Now, you had said that the prosecutor, the state's assistant state's attorney, told you the case not, may not be winnable. Yes. And, and she asked you if you would be open to the idea of a plea agreement. She did. Which would avoid the need for a trial, which right. was a risky proposition yes. in terms of whether there would be a conviction or not. Correct. A first-degree murder. Mm-hmm. 
but a plea to a lesser charge with a, a lesser sentence. Mm-hmm. Would you share that with us? Yeah, she she off well, she suggested that they would offer, they being the prosecution would offer 15 years, second degree murder for 15, and 15 years as a sentence. And when I got that call, I had already reconciled with myself, right? So I had already gotten beyond, wait a minute, what do you mean he's not going to go to jail? What do you mean he's not going to be accountable? I had gotten past that. And I had got my mind right around what I truly believed. And by asking myself, if you believe in restorative justice, if you believe in second chances, if you believe in the second chance for Darren, if you believe in Darren's humanity, then I need you to believe that for Michael as well. You can't just you can't just believe it for one person. You can't you have to believe it for all people, including the man that murdered him. So this was a time when you had to make a decision. Yeah, I had to Is yeah. this all just words? Right. Yeah. Because yeah. this is me and right. this is the man who killed my son mm-hmm. and he's coming before a court. Mm-hmm. And you, as a victim, have been asked to, what's your opinion? Yes. What did you say? I told them that I believe that 15 years was too long. But, okay, we'll do it. And you asked for the opportunity to make a statement at at his sentencing hearing. I did. He did accept the the guilty plea. he, He accepted the guilty plea. And he, the victim impact statement was also a part of the plea agreement. That you would be able that to. That I would be able to, yeah, that I would be able to say what I wanted to say in that space. And So here you are. Mm-hmm. He's coming up to be sentenced by the judge. Mm-hmm. He's pled guilty to a charge where he'd be normally, he would be expected to serve, this, that the sentence would be 15 years mm-hmm. per the plea agreement. Per the plea agreement, yes. And... You had the opportunity to speak to the judge and to Michael Reed and to his family. And to his family. What did you say? I said to them that I understood that this could have gone differently and that we could be sitting in different seats right now, that Michael could have lost his life that day. And Darren would have been looking at a lot more than 15 years because Darren was actually on mandatory supervised release at the time that this murder took place. So if he had committed the murder, he would have gone back to prison and been resentenced and probably for a very, very long time. But that wasn't the case. And because I was the person that was sitting in that seat, I chose to use that as an opportunity to speak on Michael's behalf because Darren's name was spoken for. I've been advocating for him, for his humanity, since the day he died. Can I read something to you? <laughs> Go ahead. When you were in that, gave that, it's, it's almost like a TED Talk sort of a yeah, presentation. It, yeah, it was, yeah. That you gave. I made a transcript of what you said, and you said in that, on that occasion, and that day in court... 
I was sworn in and I sat on the jury box and I read these words. I'm a mother. And I only get to speak from a mother's heart. And in this case, there are a couple things that I know for sure. Although I wasn't there on the day that this thing took place, July 22nd, 2012, my son was shot and killed. I know two things for sure. One, that Darren didn't deserve to die that day from making the worst decision of his entire life. And this young man, Your Honor, does not deserve to spend another day, another year, another minute behind bars for waking up making the worst mistake of his as well. This could have easily gone the other direction, and I would have wanted someone to be sitting in this seat speaking on behalf of my son. But Darren's name is spoken for. Today I speak for Michael Reed, and it is my hope and my prayer that you will take this opportunity and use any discretion that is available to you to show this young man leniency. And you went on to say, and the judge did. And in that talk, you went on and said, so four years that he'd already served, incarcerated, given credit for time served, Michael Reed had three years remaining on his sentence. And it blesses me, you said, in that talk, it warms my heart to say that on March 27th of this year, he was released from prison. 2019. You, the mother of Darren Easterling, who was murdered by Michael Reed, said, it blessed you, it warmed your heart that the man who murdered your son was released from prison. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us? What it was you were trying to express there? My belief in his humanity, that I trust that he would not squander the second chance that he had been given. The second chance that Darren did not have. Not because of what Michael Reed did, but because of the decisions that Darren made. So I was happy to see good come from what we experienced. We, When I say we, I mean my family and I. And they don't all agree with me on that, but that's another conversation. But it did. It blessed me and it warmed my heart. And it still does today. It, I, I felt it hearing those words that that young man got another opportunity. How do you think your heart would have been impacted? How would you be feeling today had you ask the judge to give him as much time in prison as the judge had discretion to give him. I never would have done that. It just, it would never have happened. That's, that, that wasn't my heart. Yeah, that would not have been my heart. So that never would have happened. Yeah. That would have hurt had you succumbed to the temptation to say that. It would have hurt you, wouldn't it? I could say that it would have, that it probably would have, but because it was never my thought process, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to even elaborate on it because it, that never crossed my mind. You know, it's interesting when there have been studies of victims of 
serious crimes like this, mm -hmm. violent crime, mm -hmm. the initial reaction was like, I remember in the governor's office reading a, a petition for clemency mm -hmm. by, filed by a man who had committed a murder of someone's son. And what I was reading was a statement that was filed on his behalf by the father of the victim. Mm -hmm. And what he said was, at the time, my wife and I, the victim's mother and father, mm -hmm. wanted him to suffer the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was our heart. And over the years, because it had been some time, mm -hmm. our hearts softened. Mm -hmm. They became different, I guess, in their perspective. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, he felt that he should reach out and contact that man in prison. Okay. And he did. Then he tells in this petition mm -hmm. about that meeting and how it changed both of them. And he said he essentially had it changed his heart to know the person. You speak about respecting and recognizing the humanity of the man who killed your son. Well, that's what this man was expressing, mm -hmm. was that once he got to know the person, See, and that's one of the things that happens is that we dehumanize people. They are a, they're a criminal. Mm -hmm. They're a felon. A monster. They are, mm -hmm. you know, put whatever you label you want on it. Right. Labels dehumanize. Exactly. And yet I've interviewed, what, I think probably five people at this point in past episodes mm -hmm. of the Justice Voices podcast who were convicted of murder. Mm -hmm. In one instance, that sentence was subsequently reduced, but, and then talking to them now, after they've served their time, sometimes lengthy prison sentences, right. I am confident that everyone who listens to their stories has a different attitude toward them today than they would have back when they were just reading the newspaper accounts about, of what had happened and their conviction and or their trial even in one instance mm -hmm. and the circumstances of the crime back then. And yet they are the same person today. Now they have changed their perspectives and things, but they were still the same. They still had the same humanity back then. I agree. Yes. They were on a different course today than they were back then, mm -hmm. but they're really the same person. Mm -hmm. Nothing changed in their DNA. I get Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was having a conversation just this last week with a man who sometimes is a co-host in the Justice Voices podcast with me, Leonard Joyner. Mm -hmm. Leonard Joyner and I first met over now over 25 years ago on opposite sides of a federal courtroom. Right. He was the defendant and I was the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. He was convicted. He went to trial here. He went to prison for over 18 years. And now we are close friends and associates. Our paths crossed afterwards and i don't think that was an accident probably not i think god yeah. brought us together yes and i can tell you unabashedly 
We love each other. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I wonder how things would have been if we had been able to see ourselves today mm-hmm. back then. Right. Right. Because both of us were different people with different attitudes, and we didn't have that foresight. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's a certain humility that comes into people's lives when they realize that, you know, or should come into their lives, and they realize this defendant, because I can tell you as a prosecutor, that was what I would always call Mm -hmm. the person that was Mm -hmm. on trial in front of a jury. Mm -hmm. The defense would try to humanize them, and I would call them the defendant. Right. Well, that was part of the skills of a prosecutor. Dehumanize them. To dehumanize them. Because it's very difficult to sit in judgment of a human being. Exactly. A defendant, okay, that's something different. Right, right. A criminal. Right. A felon. Yep. Labels dehumanize. Yes, they do. But you ended your, this talk, this TED-type talk of yours, talking about the importance of telling people's stories and the healing power of telling the story. Now, you experienced healing through telling Darren's story, through telling your story, but you actually were also talking about, to the extent that you knew about it, Michael Reed's story. Even though you didn't know the details, you knew he had a story. And just knowing he had a story changed your heart. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. He he was, as far as I was concerned at that time, he was no different than my son. And that was just it. He was no different. And what I what what I mean by that is his humanity and his his flaws, his failings. Darren was flawed, and he failed really, really big. And if I could have the capacity to continue to love and to parent and to nurture him in his death that came at his own hand as a result of his own decisions, then why on earth could I not have that same capacity for somebody else? I hope what you just said really sinks into the people that are listening. I think of the Sermon on the Mount, that how many times Mm -hmm. the people read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Mm -hmm. Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Right. And in that, he says, we are to love your enemies. Mm -hmm. Love our enemies. Mm -hmm. Love our enemies. Those do good. Pray for those and do good to those who hate us and who would despitefully, or in other words, do us harm. Right. Right. Even if they're on that track. Right. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't saying that they shouldn't be held accountable. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't, that we should just consign ourselves to be perpetual victims of victimizers. <laughs> but what he, what he was talking about is how we see them as human beings, as fellow children of God. Mm-hmm. You saw and see Michael Reed through that lens. And because of that, You are living what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Hmm. to put it in simple terms. Right. Okay. (laughs) You know, I mean, if that's what it is. Isn't it? 
Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I don't. I, I just, I always look at the way that I've managed myself in the years since Darren's passing as the way that it just makes sense. It is the way that brings me the most peace. It is the, the, the way through which I am always able to find joy. And I don't understand what anybody else doesn't understand. I just don't about where I am in this space and and to the point of the police officers there so how is it that you speak so matter of factly I'm not sure how else I'm supposed to talk about it I have to tell the truth and and because that's a part of the story that's a part of the story and if I've always wanted if my ultimate objective was that my child be humanized and that was what the objective was then I understand that, and I said this in the talk, that the shortest distance between any two people is a story. We find so much commonality in our stories. I had to tell a story, and I had to leave nothing out. And in doing that, I've lived the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. And you've experienced healing. And I've experienced healing, yes. You know... This, to me, is beyond—the word powerful doesn't begin to express it, mm. because it's, it's more than that. It's more than powerful, but it impacts me deeply. Now, I have not experienced the, the grief. Mm-hmm. I haven't been that kind of victim mm-hmm. of crime that you have. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I— listen to you when I read the statement of this father and this petition for clemency. Mm -hmm. I think this is what Jesus was talking about. And there's such deep, pure goodness in it that it gives me hope for heaven, frankly, that this is what people are like who gather there. Mm. And the people who gathered there will all be guilty of all kinds of things that they've done to harm people. Sure. We are all victims, yes. But we are all, in one way or another, victimizers. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Yeah. the nature of life. And if we can forgive one another, there can be a healing, a harmony, restoring a harmony, a heavenly harmony. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm talking about it in religious terms, but mm-hmm. someone could who didn't believe in God could just maybe change the language a little bit. For sure. There's still a something that people sense when I mean you sense something in the courtroom. I can guarantee you Michael Reed sensed something. You changed his life when you said the things that you did. And he in turn, had had to come to grips with a lot of things. I know that without either one of us having talked to him about it. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So whether you use religious language or not, I have often said to most people, justice means 
giving people who have done harm the punishment they deserve. Mm -hmm. Well, what if justice is healing, repairing the damage that was done? Yeah. That it would be unjust to harm even a person who has caused harm in the name of justice. Exactly. How can justice, how can it be just to cause harm right. to someone? Right. S send someone who has chosen a path of violence, mm -hmm. a Michael Tafoya, who, as he said, he, ended, he made the decision to pick up the gun mm -hmm. because he figured the only way he could really protect himself in the right. neighborhood he lived in and his family right. was to become what he feared. Right. And he ended up committing a murder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet you look at the Michael Tafoya today. Yeah. He is the most gentle, yeah. kind, yeah. good yes. man. I love him so much. Yes. Oh. Yes. He is. Mm -hmm. Or Eddie Bocanegra. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Same type of story. Yep. Same rules apply. I love him dearly. Okay. So in both instances, very traumatic circumstances. And so what we do when they get convicted, even if you recognize that this trauma in their lives led to them becoming traumatizers, mm -hmm. we send them to prison to right. experience more traumatic experiences. Right. And we expect good to come out of this. Yes. I don't know what the answers are, but I can tell you, the math does not add up. No. That does not make sense to me. No, it doesn't. And I know you've thought about that because you've been on the prisoner review board. You are the one of those who made judgment calls as to whether people should be released. Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to get inside your head to the extent that you're willing to let us do that of what that was like. Because these are real people. Yes. But the crimes they've committed are real too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you, how did you handle that? First, I brought to the position the belief system that I always had, which is the importance of recognizing and acknowledging the humanity in, in everyone, no matter what they've done. And then being able to challenge the assumptions of those around me who thought differently. And that's what I did for the four and a half years that I was there. I stood on what I believed to be true. And I spoke... I spoke that I spoke that truth to power in every scenario that that it was that it was necessary, I think. Did you always vote to reduce a sentence or to release somebody? No. And what would cause you not to? There are a couple of things. One of the things that was always necessary to consider was this person's growth over the time that they had been incarcerated. So what does that look like? You know, and that that comes in many forms. The evidence of that comes in in different forms. It comes in letters of support from not just loved ones, because, you know, loved ones say we love them. We want them to come home. But there are letters of support from from IDOC staff. You know, this person has been working here and is and, and does amazing work and, you know, has changed and is rehabilitated from community 
organizations that may have known of this particular person. There are education programs that work in inside out programs where they have students who are who are not incarcerated and studying with students who are. So letters from professors and words of acknowledgement, words of support from from again from the community and and things of that nature. Being able to see solid evidence of this person's growth and development over the years that they've been incarcerated. Sometimes we get to talk directly to people and sometimes we don't. In in parole hearings we do and we did and in clemency we did not. So it's a little more challenging to actually see, which is why, see the growth and development, which is why it is so important to have people in the space speaking on that person's behalf. What you're talking about is essentially is you are called upon to make a judgment as to whether it would be safe mm-hmm. to release this person. Yes. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom it? line. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not so much justice, no. what they deserve, but... There is one thing that prison does well, and there's really only one thing that prison does well in my view, mm-hmm. and that is they incapacitate mm-hmm. people. It's a form of intervention mm-hmm. to prevent future victimization. Mm-hmm. So you on the Prisoner Review Board mm-hmm. with imperfect information mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and assessment danger assessment tools, risk assessment tools. When I say danger, I'm talking about danger right. of, right. well, danger means danger, but risk assessment, a risk of recidivism, mm-hmm. ma- meaning repeat, coming back to prison. Mm-hmm. So you you have to make some sort of predictions about the future. That's very difficult. Yes, it is. But the way you're talking about going about it is to look at the person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if I were to be standing up in the courtroom as a prosecutor today, mm-hmm. just as we've been talking, based on what I told you about calling them the defendant, okay, that was a good skill. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's for a prosecutor. But you know what? I think I would feel difficult doing that today. Tell me I, why. I think that it would be, my conscience would tell me I need to speak of them as a person, mm-hmm. a person who committed a crime mm-hmm. and who needs to be held accountable for the commission of that crime. Right. And I think that it's important to do that, to remember when we have that impulse to put a label on somebody right. that the best antidote is probably say their name. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yes. Say their name. Yes. There was never an individual that sat in front of me, whether it was in a parole revocation hearing or whether it was in an institutional hearing for someone that was coming up for parole or whether it was me presenting someone who had just submitted a petition and I had never met but had submitted a petition for clemency. It was always my process, I guess you could say, to refer to that person as by their name. When I read, when I would read my my statement in a in a parole hearing. I never re- I never referred to them as the petitioner. I've read reports where they've been referred to as the sex offender. How can you see the only see the worst thing that someone has ever done? And so it was always my practice during my time on the board to refer to 
everyone by their surname. Everyone that I came in contact with. Yeah. Respectfully. Respectfully. Absolutely respectfully. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you established the Darren B. Easterling Center for Restorative Practices. Yes, I did. And you've mentioned, well, two things. One, I really like that you included his middle initial. That is his name. That's his name. Darren B. Easterling. Yes. Human being. Yes. Whole human being. Whole human being. Yes, he is a whole human. Not just Darren. Nope. But nope. Darren B. Easterling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That says something to me. Yeah. And then restorative practices. And you said that in the sentencing hearing of Michael Reed, mm-hmm. that you were saying you had come to believe in restorative justice. Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say restorative justice? And what do you mean when you're talking about restorative practices? Yeah, yeah. So restorative justice is nothing new. It is a a lifestyle, an ideology that has been around for many, many years. And it is a way of bringing together those who have been harmed with those who have caused harm and allowing the community to work together to repair the harm that has been caused. Our system is set up so that the state comes in and is the representative of the person who has been harmed. And it is always the people versus. And in a restorative community. For people who may not understand what you're talking about, there's a prosecutor. Yes. The prosecutor and the judge mm-hmm. are public servants. Mm-hmm. And they represent the interests of the public. And when I would stand up in court as a state prosecutor, first year and a half of my career, mm-hmm. I would say yeah, to the jury, my name is David Risley. I represent the people of the state of Illinois. Right, right. Now, I wouldn't stand up there and say, I represent the victim. Right. I would say, I represent the people of the state of Illinois. Mm-hmm. And in the federal system, I would say, I represent the United States of America. And the judge would refer to us as the prosecutor representing the government. Mm-hmm. Okay, where's the victim? Exactly, exactly. Now, this is interesting. Later in my legal career, mm-hmm. I, I even was in, I was a legal advisor to the, uh, an attorney advisor to the Iraqi High Tribunal. Mm-hmm. This was when I became first, later in the course of things, over later later years in my career, more familiar with a system of justice that's based on the French system or the continental system, it's okay. sometimes called. It's actually used in most of the world okay. rather than the common law system we have, sometimes called the civil law system. And in that system, even here in the trial of Saddam Hussein, mm-hmm. as I'm observing that, mm-hmm. there were two proceedings going on at the same time. One was... The criminal case. The other was what we would call a civil case. Mm -hmm. There were attorneys in the courtroom representing the victims. Mm -hmm. And representing, there were prosecutors and there were defense attorneys. Mm -hmm. But in the courtroom, there were attorneys speaking on behalf of and cross-examining witnesses on behalf of the victims. Right. A different paradigm Mm -hmm. of procedure Mm -hmm. for criminal justice. Mm Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen in our system. They're bifurcated. You can have a civil case, but that's separate. And it's usually something that happens after the criminal case is all resolved. Mm -hmm. 
not at the same time. So in our proceedings, just so people understand what you're talking about, sure, yeah. it's the people versus the defendant. Right. And the victim has no voice. Where's the victim? Yeah. Victim may be a witness. True. And if the victim's lucky, there's it's in the federal system. We actually have somebody in the U.S. Attorney's offices who's hired as a victim witness coordinator. Mm-hmm. And they look after the of the victim. But the victims have only marginal voice in that criminal proceeding that is brought on behalf of the public. Right. The public interest. Right. Which is in public safety. Right. We call that justice. But I'm going to say, suggest, if it's not justice for the victims, how dare we call it justice? Right. So restorative justice. You're talking about a process that is victim-centered and to some extent Mm victim-driven. And the objective is healing. Healing, right. Justice as healing. Healing. Mm -hmm. And it involves Mm -hmm. actually both the victim getting to know the person who caused the harm Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I probably shouldn't even say the victim. The person who suffered harm, mm-hmm. getting to know the person who caused the harm, mm-hmm. and conversely, mm-hmm. the person who caused the harm, getting to know the person or people mm-hmm. whom they harmed. Mm-hmm. And somehow, if it's possible, yep. in a structured, sort of facilitated way, exactly, each coming to grips mm-hmm. with the harm mm-hmm. and each other, mm-hmm. And as I have, I haven't experienced this, you have, Mm -hmm. and you've observed it, Mm -hmm. healing happens. Exactly. Would you tell us about that healing part? Yeah. Because I could see, I think a lot of people listening in said, I'll tell you what I'd do if I came, I'd want to throttle the person who comes. Right, right, right. So in real talk, let's get down to real real talk. Real talk. I think this it's culminated by everything that we've been talking about today. People seeing other people as human beings, the shortest distance between any two people being their a, a story. And when restorative justice courts or circumstances, and, and we don't like to, I don't like to say courts because that's kind of counter counterproductive when it's not really a court proceeding but it is a a gathering again the voices of all that have been impacted including the person that has caused harm have an opportunity to speak and to speak their truth and to come together to resolve the problem that has been created by the harm that has been caused, whatever that looks like. But the biggest thing, one of the big things that come that 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 happens throughout any restorative proceeding is that human dignity is maintained. The person that has caused harm is not banished from his community and 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 left to assimilate to in a place that has nothing to do with the community that he came from. That doesn't happen. This person is is kept in community and is supported by community. 
because the community understands that this person is not the worst thing that he did, he or she did. He is a human being that for whatever reason, based on whatever circumstances, did something that caused harm. And it is more important to keep that person in community in order to enable them or afford them an opportunity to one restore, just why, you know, we call it restorative, why it is called restorative justice, to restore community and then also heal from whatever it was that prompted them to cause the harm in the first place. And I, in listening to you, I could almost say, instead of restorative justice, it's more like healing justice. But you're talking about three interests here. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the person who suffered the harm mm-hmm. or people mm-hmm. and the person or people who caused the harm mm-hmm. and the community exactly. that they live in. Exactly. Because these are, you know, even if you didn't believe in God, that these are children of God, mm-hmm. even if you didn't, these are children of our community. Exactly. And the community has been harmed. Exactly. There, it, it, the social fabric has been torn. Exactly. And, exactly. And, and justice would be repairing the tear, the exactly. rift. Exactly. Restoring harmony right. and peace right. and safety in right. the community. In the community. And you can't punish your way to that healing. Exactly. You got it, David. <laughs> that's that's it. That's it. I mean, on, on the most minute level, I live in a home, in a community, and three teenagers on the next block break into my home and tear up my house, and they take some money, and they you know, damage my property. And now I'm impacted. I'm afraid to live in my home. I'm impacted financially because I have to take care of all of the things that have been, you know, been, been damaged in this, in this incident. And now my neighbors are afraid. My neighbors to the left of me, my neighbors to the right of me. Everyone, is, the, everyone is afraid because they don't know if our home is going to be next. And Much more than property. Exactly. Because, right, I don't, you know, know that I wasn't at home when my house got broken into, but my neighbors are thinking, oh, my God, what if we're at home and, and these people come and they do this do this thing to our home? What could happen to us? And so now and of course, I'm making this up all of it and <laughs> using this as an example. Yeah, it's a big hypothetical. And so now someone overhears that these two young men are selling some things that don't belong to them and we're all now come to the understanding that those those things are my things that I said that, you know, were taken from my home. And so now we all come together. We bring them together with the things that they've taken and we bring them together. And one of the things that they listen to in this, I don't know, maybe tribunal that we're, we're having together, this community forum. Sometimes they call them circles. Circles, yes. And I share how frightened I am now that after my house has been damaged so badly, I'm afraid to sleep at night. And these things that I had that were treasures for me or were taken from me. And I, I just express 
all of my experience as a result of what happened to the young men that committed this harm against me. Now there's an opportunity also for, again, my neighbors on the left, my neighbors on the right to say how afraid we are after this thing that happened. And then these young men get an opportunity to speak after they've heard our voices from our experience. And they share with us that some of their story that, I don't know, you know, they have a parent that's incarcerated. They are living in very challenging times economically, and they don't have all of the things that they'd like to have. They've got a story. And so instead of, and we all, the community, we hear their story. We hear from their mother. We hear from their parents about how it is that, you know, they got into the situation that they're in. And justice for this community looks like us all rallying together to support them. It looks like the man that lives four doors down, but still in the community that owns a McDonald's, giving them a job and making sure that they come to work every day and, you know, helping. And it looks like the the guy across the street from me saying, you know, let's all get together and on days that you need a ride, if your mom's not available, we'll make sure that you get to work. And we also come up with a payment plan to repay the financial costs that I've incurred as a result of my home being broken into. We embrace them, these young men. We, we hear their story, we see their humanity, and we embrace them and help them be better, do better, know better on their journey. We don't banish them from the community that they know into a place where they have to become someone completely different in, all, in, in, a, in an effort to survive. In a prison environment. In a prison environment, yeah. Miles, hundreds right. of miles. Hundreds of miles where no one can come see them. That's what restorative justice, that's just a picture of what restorative justice looks like. And going full circle to the way we began this conversation, mm-hmm. what that does is it gives the people who were the victims of harm. Mm-hmm an opportunity to hear the story and to, for the person who who perpetrated the harm to humanize them. Mm-hmm. But it also does the reverse. It enables those who have caused the harm to understand what that harm was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just that they stole some things. Right. I mean, are they, you said that you said that somebody said crime happens in the moment. Yes. Okay. Now, they are developing the capacity to see mm-hmm. that their actions caused, mm-hmm. not just theoretically, but caused all sorts of harm that exactly. they weren't thinking about mm-hmm. when they broke into that place. Mm-hmm. And here they are coming face to face with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that will change inevitably mm-hmm. the way the vast majority of people who have caused harm yeah. think about their actions in the future. Exactly, That has to be powerfully you can use the word rehabilitative. Mm-hmm. Maybe habilitative mm-hmm. doesn't make any difference. I'm mm-hmm. going to use the word healing, healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. And somehow through this process, there is something constructive that is salvaged from a bad situation. Exactly. It's, exactly. it's 
fundamentally problem solving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that is so different than right. the punishment paradigm of justice. Right. It, right. This is problem solving. Right. This is real stuff. Right. Right. Because think about it, going back to the quote, crime happens in the moment. And usually there's a drive there there are primary drivers of, of crime in this nation. And to be able to come together and hear what the primary drivers are and simply address them. Just simply address them. That's what that's what head on. Exactly. That's what we did in this community. We addressed those drivers. We addressed that particular driver of crime for these two young men by supporting them, by showing them a different way, by showing them the impact of their actions. None of that happens in the current criminal justice system that we have, because first and foremost, the victim's voice is silenced because the people or rep- the, I'm sorry, the state comes in to represent the people. I mean, that's a tall order, right? That's a tall order for David Risley to come in and represent the people. It's heady. I, I can tell you. Yeah, they, you right. Know, it, it, really, it really fills you with a, a sense of pride. Exactly. Power. <laughs> but I can guarantee you when I stand up there and say, I represent the United States of America. <laughs> Right. Or the people of the state of Illinois. Yeah. I'm not saying I represent the interests of the people who were hurt here. Right. And the interests of the defendant. Right. Who, oh, by the way, is one of the people. Now, I will tell you this as a prosecutor. I never, ever, and I've said this to prosecutors and police. If you ever forget that the person who is the criminally accused, as one of my defense attorney friends prefers to call them. Yeah. The defendant is one of the people, too. Yeah. And as the prosecutor, my role in doing justice is to do justice by them as well. Yeah. But, you know, I just don't remember really having many conversations where that was about the victim, mm-hmm. the person who suffered the harm. Right. Now, maybe it is in drug crime or something. It's hard to put your finger on who the Mm -hmm. victim is. It's a whole community. Right. But you're talking about circles that include people from the community Mm -hmm. that talk about the impact on the community Mm -hmm. of this act and other acts Mm -hmm. like it Mm -hmm. in harming a community of people Mm -hmm. that it matters. It does. That choices matter. Yes. Okay, now a person is starting to develop empathy. Mm Mm-hmm. Empathy yeah. is the antidote to the impulse of the moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Empathy, the ability to think about the people that will be harmed. Right. In the scenario you described, mm-hmm. these people who have caused the harm mm-hmm. are listening to their mother mm-hmm. in the circle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's suppose it was something that was more serious where they're they're going to go. They're going to serve some time in prison because mm-hmm. no judge or prosecutor in the right mind is going to feel confident that right. no matter what the healing power of this circle, mm-hmm. that this it would be a safe bet to turn right. them loose. Right. They're going to have to prove themselves yeah, exactly. as part of the accountability. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, this they're going through this process and they're hearing from their mother. I mean, in a court hearing, you hear from sometimes the victims like right. you spoke up. Right. The mother, right? 
of the defendant. Right. Oh, people from the community, all of this, mm-hmm. all of the people that were impacted. Right. I'm trying to just in my own mind to picture what it would be like to be the one who convened this mm-hmm. circle, this mm-hmm. gathering mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. because of my criminal act of harm that I did to someone. Mm. Oh, that has got to be mm-hmm. a powerful mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. That changes the way they think. Exactly. Everybody in the room. Everybody yeah, in the everybody. room is everybody in the room is impacted by something like that because you see everybody in the room in a way that you didn't see them before. Connected. Exactly. We understand that we're all connected by our humanity. Or even if we don't understand it fully, we see it on display. Right? One of the things that you you mentioned earlier about as a prosecutor being mindful to refer to the defendant as the defendant and maybe not intentionally but we understand you and I understand that that minimizes the humanity of that person. Oh, I can tell you that it was intentional. It's okay. intentional dehumanizing of the person because that increases the chances that the jury right will it kind of lets them off the hook, so to speak, mm. because we're asking them to make a judgment, not about the person, but right, about their but behavior. what they did. Yeah. And it helps them have a little bit of distance wow. from that. Wow. So it's not necessarily malicious. But Strategy. Yeah it's, yeah. it's hard to be on a jury yeah. to sit in judgment. So I often would tell them, we're not asking you to judge this person. We're asking you to judge their behavior. And you can see sometimes... It was just like a weight lifted off wow. members of the jury. Wow. Because that is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Because I'll tell you, as a prosecutor, I never did forget yeah. that this is a child of God yeah. sitting behind me here yeah. in the in the, the defendant's seat mm-hmm. and my spiritual brother or sister. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I ever did forget that, forget, I need to quit this job. Hmm. I have no business wielding the prosecu- the power of a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. If I ever forget that, mm-hmm. forget their humanity. Mm-hmm. But would I do that with the jury as a rhetorical device to kind of let them off the hook? Mm-hmm. Yes, I would. Mm-hmm. It was deliberate. Mm-hmm. And I feel a sense of discomfort hmm. about having done that. Hmm. Interesting. So Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. And, and just like you did that to use that language to minimize the humanity of the person who had caused harm. I think it's also worth noting that that same relationship, so to speak, exists between the person that causes harm and the victim of harm. Because if I don't see their humanity, then it's easier for me to cause harm. If I just see someone driving a BMW and I don't have what they have or I don't have what I think they have, I can. it's easier for me to walk up and, to them and put a gun to their head and say, get out, you know, and get in. And I'm not thinking about the financial ramifications. I'm not thinking about the emotional ramifications. I'm not thinking about the trauma. I don't see them as a human being. Robbing a bank? Robbing a bank. Walking in, you know, I don't see them as a human being, which makes it easier. 
or the nightmares that they have exactly exactly and so it makes it easier to your point that you the instruction well not the instruction but the intent for the jury was to judge them on simply on what they did and not see their humanity and that works in that victim um space as well where it's easier for me to cause them harm when I don't see their humanity. They're getting in the way of, of me want of me fulfilling my own needs. And so what restorative justice does is it takes that away also. And it gives an opportunity to actually see the humanity in the person that you harmed. And everybody involved. And everybody involved. Yeah. Wow. What a different paradigm of justice. Mm-hmm. What a practical approach to justice. Yeah. Problem solving. Yeah. Reality based. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It makes so much sense to me. Mm -hmm. And it is such a gap between that and the usual things that happened in our criminal justice system. Yes. Speaking as somebody who spent over 30 years as Mm -hmm. a prosecutor, Mm -hmm. state and federal. Huge, huge gap. Yeah. Huge gap in the way things work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lisa, this has been an enormously instructive conversation. I want to tell you. Okay. You're going to feel uncomfortable at this. Okay. But you are an extraordinary person. And because you're extraordinary, I wanted people to be able to hear your story and get to know you. Because what you exemplify should be ordinary, not extraordinary. Because you are a regular person. I really am. It really, what makes you different is a different way of looking at things and a different way of looking at people. Mm -hmm. You don't just mouth the words. You feel it. It's part of you. It's who you are. When I asked you about what would it do to you if you had gotten up for Michael Reed and recommended the maximum sentence or something, you... I can see on the face, <laughs> yeah, like, it, this, this just doesn't compute. I don't. I can't really tell you, I can't answer the question because I can't picture that. Exactly. It's not who I am. Yeah. 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 And that is unfortunately extraordinary. Mm. But I want to tell you that I respect that. I feel that. Mm-hmm. Knowing you and hearing your story changes me. Mm. Amen. There are people who are going to hear this, Mm -hmm. and I can guarantee you it will change them. That's my hope. That that is my absolute hope, David, to have conversations like this, to sit in a panel, stand at a microphone at a podium, and be asked, share your story. From the beginning, the intent was to plant seeds of change. That's that's the only reason I'm here is to plant seeds, change and of healing. And to Alex Kotlowitz, my dear friend and author of There Are No Children Here, wrote a letter of support for me when I was applying to be appointed to the Prisoner Review Board. And in his letter, he said that um, what he knew for sure about me after working with me on one of his books was that I would challenge the assumptions of my colleagues and 
at the end of my last session in clemency on Friday, January 13th, I could, I, I walked away knowing that at the very minimum, I had been able to do that for four and a half years. I've always said that the way that I see the experience of losing my son should never be the exception. It should always be the rule. And so I continue to share that in spaces like this and hope that people hear and that their hearts are changed. Yeah. So thank you for having me. Thank you for creating this space, enabling individuals to share the beauty in their stories and the wealth from their experiences. Yeah. And the healing in their voices. Thank you. This is Justice Voices. Have you suffered harm as a victim of a criminal act? If so, then you have a story to tell. And sharing your voice can help heal others. And sharing your views about what true justice is, or should be, from the perspective of a victim, can help change the way victims are treated by our criminal justice system. Justice is not really justice without being the justice that victims need and want, which is often very different from what those who claim to be seeking justice on behalf of victims may assume or believe. So, please share your story and what you have learned from your own experience, what you, as a victim of criminal harm, want and need from a justice system that works for victims. Just hold a phone or camera in front of you, record what you want to share, then post it on the Victim Voices Facebook page or the IBL Victim Voices community page with the hashtag pound symbol Victim Voices, all one word. Pound symbol Victim Voices, all one word. Or if you don't want to post a video, just post an audio recording or share a written post. We look forward to hearing your story and your voice.